Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. If you have your Bible or device, if you don't, we'll have the verses up on the screen. We'll be in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13. Um, but hey, um, just real quick, I ran up to Lindsay during worship. I was like, make them sing one more song. And then, of course, or repeat. And then, of course, we have that awkward pause like we normally always have. Um, but hey, uh, the reason for that is because um, God is always meeting with us when we're present, right? He's always amongst us. He's always moving. But sometimes he's here in a little bit more tangible way. And I got really excited because this morning he's just here with us in a little more tangible way. And so as you're listening to the preaching and as you're worshiping, just pay, it, just pay attention to what the Lord's speaking to you because when he manifests his presence a tad bit more, he's more talkative than he normally is. So I just think he really has something for us this morning, and I think he has something for a lot of you in here. So, hey, we're going to jump into our scripture. It's going to be Genesis 3, 1 through 13. So in verse 1, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you to not eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we thank you for your presence that, like Chad said, is always with us, but sometimes... We maybe feel it a little bit more, and so I just ask for more of that this morning. I pray in these next few minutes that, um, I don't know, I pray this a lot, but I just pray that you would give us the courage to look inside ourselves at things you might want to uh, expose in us or redeem in us or... uh, 
places you want to draw near to you and us this morning. Uh, in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I missed you guys a lot last week. Uh, I heard all week about how good worship was, uh, and you were in the very good and wise and messy-haired hands of Nick Kessler, which I'm very jealous of. Um, but I was glad to be gone from here uh, because I was at Sharp Top Cove, a Young Life camp, living out um, my literal childhood dreams. Um, I grew up at Young Life camps, and I would fall asleep at night for years writing Young Life talks that I could give at camps. Um, uh, the problem is that I always fell asleep doing it, so I don't know how good it was, but that doesn't matter because I had the time of my life, and I uh, legitimately, it, it feels very vulnerable to like hold one of your dreams or one of your hopes in your hands, and I feel like I got to do that for a whole weekend. And then another added layer was that um, my two of the like hundreds of high school kids I got to talk to about Jesus, two of them are mine, and so that feels like really another level of special and another level of... Um, deep and wonderful. So thank you for, for letting me miss last week to be there. Um, I, also, this has been just like a crazy week. I owe a bunch of you reply texts currently, um, but our staff, we, we, I got home from Sharp Top and then our staff left on Tuesday and we spent the week in New York City, uh, which, so I like did two of my favorite things in the world, Young Life Camp and then New York City, all in a matter of like six days, which is absolutely incredible. Um, but we got away for a few days to spend time together just getting to be with each other before uh, we send Chad away. Um, <laughs> I said it without crying this time, so, you know, growth. Um, but spend time together, and then we, we met. I have a, a coach that lives in Long Island, and so we met with him and did some strategy stuff for us, for our church. Um, but then we spent a big chunk of our time uh, meeting with a guy named Seth Bouchelle that, that uh, Chad and I keep quoting from in, in sermons and will uh, I will do again this morning. Um, he, he was, he's become a really significant resource for Chad uh, and now myself. And so it was really good to think and strategize and talk with him. He's a spiritual director. And so we did uh, some good work. So it was a treat. We're all very spiritually elite now. So you're welcome. I won't say anything weird. I already have. So great. Um, Anyway, I have been excited to get home to you and to go back to the garden with you. Um, before I jump into this sermon, though, I do want to say um, that this whole series uh, is very, very highly influenced. And by highly influenced, I mean almost copied ver verbatim um, from two books. And uh, they were on our resource list on social media. But for those of you who don't have them or don't have social media, one is called Garden City by John Mark Comer. And the other one is called Lost Faith by Seth Bouchelle. And it's like, I mean, if I'm like bringing the book on stage and I remembered to take it out of my bag, it's because I think you should read these books so much. And as always, if you can't buy it, I will buy it for you if you will read it and talk to me about it. Because um, these are fantastic. Uh, so, so good. Um, can't recommend them enough. So. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when we started this series, we talked about um, what it meant for God to commission Adam and then through Adam for God to commission all of humanity with the work of, of ruling, with the work of tending and ordering the earth. 
Uh, And then last week, Nick talked about desire in a way that I think fit incredibly well into the ideas that bounce around a garden city. Um, But this week, what we're going to do is we're going to move from chapter 2 of Genesis to chapter 3 of Genesis and talk about nakedness. And I have to say, I'm feeling um, a little bit nervous and sheepish about the number of times that I'm going to have to say nakedness in the next few minutes. Um, not because I'm uncomfortable with the concept of nakedness. I live with four males. Uh, I'm the only one that wears pants in my home. Um, it is because I am uncomfortable with the way I say the word because I'm from the South. Um, and I cannot figure out today if I should call it naked or naked. And so I would like to just, this is the only way I have found to be able to figure this out is I'm just going to take a poll from you guys, and whoever says it the most way, that's how I'm going to say it. So if you say naked, raise your hand. Do, do you hear the difference? N-A-K-E-D. Okay, naked. Yeah, you need me to say it again. Thanks, Allison. Okay, that's a lot of people. Who says naked? N-E-K-K-I-D. Okay. Um, also, I know half of you don't. You just want me to say it that way, which is fair. We'll see what happens. I don't know what's going to come out. Okay, so uh, the man and the woman... They're in the garden uh, in Genesis 2, where we, we left, left off a while ago, commissioned to rule, and it's beautiful, and it's perfect, and it, literally perfect. I, I say this a lot. Huck will clean his room, and I'll say, is it perfect? And he says, nothing's perfect, Mom. I'm like, thank you for your mini-sermon. Is it perfect? Um, but, but it was. At this point in time, it, it, it truly was perfect. It was euphoric, and they have um, their work in creation, uh, but they also at the same time have this life-giving, um, complete intimacy nothing separating them from the Father. That's just like, it's not even maybe symbiotic, just this like interconnected relationship that empowers their work. I I legitimately love Genesis chapter two and could spend a whole year just talking about it because it's full of calling and purpose and things that I love. But unfortunately, Genesis two is very short. The perfection um, is very short-lived because on the heels of Genesis two comes Genesis three, our text for today. So where we uh, end in Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve in the garden doing their thing, um, Genesis chapter 3 picks up with a serpent who comes to Eve and tells her essentially that God has been lying to them. That there is a power that's accessible to her that she doesn't know about. That there's um, something accessible to her that God is keeping from her. And that's what it takes to convince her to do the only thing that God had asked them not to do. The only thing that Adam and Eve had been asked not to do is not to eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, but a promise of power, a promise to break out of the limitedness that she had is all that it takes for her to eat the fruit. The snake whispers a lie to Eve and she takes the fruit and then she gives it to Adam. And I don't know about you, um, but as I read this story, it's kind of easy for me at this point to kind of um, get hung up on this one idea, and that is there is a talking snake, (laughs) right? Like a talking snake, and I get hung up there. Like, is this uh, real? Is this literal? Is it poetry? Is it a metaphorical snake? Is it an actual snake that speaks? I don't know. Um, And I love the way John Mark Comer talks about this um, because uh, he talks about something that I think it's true. Uh, Whether or not the snake is literal here, I don't think is the most important question. And so if you, like me, are hung up on the snake, um, I don't think the most important question for us to ask is, is this a literal snake? I think the question that we're supposed to ask when we read this in Genesis chapter 3, is why is an animal offering power? 
Why is an animal offering power? Uh, God has set up the world with an order to things. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. God made uh, the earth and then he created humans to rule over it and all that was in it. And here we have an animal who has been named by Adam powering up on Adam. An animal below Adam in the order of things powering up on him. And so I think that the, the point of this is not literal or metaphor. The point that we would do well to notice today in our story is that the order of creation is being reversed in some pretty tragic and dangerous ways. And I think that's true on a lot of levels. The order of creation, it's reversed, and the fallout is catastrophic for humans. Uh, the first thing that happens um, is that the man and woman realize that they are naked. But they don't just realize their nakedness, they immediately feel shame in it and immediately feel fear in it. And for the very first time in the entire world, shame comes in, fear comes in. The next thing that happens is that uh, God, he comes back to the garden uh, to be with the man and to be with the woman in search of Adam and Eve, uh, who he had commissioned to rule and to reign. And he doesn't find them ruling and reigning. He finds them hiding in the trees. I want to quote uh, John Mark Comer here. He says this. He says, the fallout is disastrous. God comes to Eden in search of his king and queen. Where are they? Hiding in the bushes. So the very place that was once delight, a place of safety and vulnerability and beauty, is now a place of fear and shame and regret. And the creator who has so far been marked by creativity and power and generosity and freedom and love, he does something odd and out of character. He curses his image. That's what happens next. He curses his image. And I want to talk about that for just a little while because I think it's incredibly important because I've never found a story uh, in other faith practices and um, uh, other myths, all kinds of things. I've never found a story that quite explains what happened uh, to us as humans and to us uh, in the world that's better or more compelling than the first few chapters of Genesis. I think it's the most compelling explanation for why we are the way uh, that we are. And, and I think the curse thing is kind of weird because we, have, we kind of immediately go to curses in our minds, like what we've read in books or what we've seen in the movies. Um, but this curse, it's not hocus pocus or one of the unforgivable curses the, uh, the, uh, in Harry Potter, the Avada Kedavra or whatever. All the Harry Potter nerds are like, she said it. Oh, no. Um, that's not the same. That's not what's happening um, in this curse. The curse in Genesis 3 means uh, that, that based on the choice to eat, o the only thing that man and woman were restricted from, uh, the, 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 there was a wide and by our human power irreversible consequences. And there were wide and irreversible changes in the orders of things. This is not a hocus pocus curse. This is a chasm. It's a split. For the first time through the curse, pain enters what was perfect. Uh, it goes on in Genesis chapter 3. God uh, says, talks to the woman first, and through her, he essentially curses the family, restricts and separates the family. And then he talks to the man, and he curses the field. He restricts and separates the work of our hands. 
pain uh, comes to both of them. Pain comes in birth and pain comes in labor. They're both described as like labor pains, that our work will be painful, our family life will be painful. Uh, I want to quote John Mark Comer again. He says it like this. All human effort for civilization is now cursed with a nagging sense of dissatisfaction. Fatigue, burnout, back pain, ibuprofen, strife, litigation, greed, waste, poverty, injustice, wishing you had more vacation time. All of this comes in the wake of Eve's first bite. All because of one bite from one tree and the, the, the promise of the power that came with it. The draw of the fruit was this desire in Adam and Eve. And I think if we're honest, it's a desire in all of us. Uh, The desire to be less limited by our humanity is what drove them to the fruit. And it's, it's not just Adam and Eve. Because just like them, I think all of us are, are incredibly unsatisfied with the limits of our own humanity. All of us, we make choices that we believe will make us, like Eve thought, more like God. Uh, the, the problem with Adam and Eve's choice, and also ours, and this may be oversimplifying it completely, but I think the problem with her choice is that she was overreaching in her order of things. The animal meant to be beneath them promised the chance of something beyond what they had. Adam and Eve, they had every single thing that they needed. But the the snake promised something beyond what they had. And so unsatisfied with the way things were in that moment, they grasped beyond themselves to find something to satisfy uh, what was longing within them. We can't relate at all thousands and thousands of years later, right? Overreaching, it costs them, and I think it costs us greatly. Uh, Seth Bouchel uh, says it like this. He says, in overreaching, we upset the balance of things. Through trying to be like God, we discovered the crushing responsibility of having to be the source of our own provision and our own identity. This is how we discovered fear, insecurity, accusation, and betrayal. Overreach was how we discovered our nakedness and decided that we should be ashamed of it. Rejecting our own limitedness, our inherent dependence, we brought about the curse and the pain of autonomy, separation from God in the order of things. By overreaching, we welcomed new things into the world, pain and fear and shame and insecurity and accusation. That came on fast. You guys giggled, so did I. What were you doing? Oh, that woman made me. Betrayal. Oh, that woman made me. They came on so quickly. Our desire to be less limited resulted in a separation from the only true source of resourcing and power. We messed with the order of things, and it caused a separation between us and God, and it caused pain between us and our role in creation and in the things that we would create. Uh, the, the word for separation uh, that the Bible uses is sin, um, but I, I honestly hate that word. Uh, this is true. One time, Chad, after being here at Springbrook for, I mean, it had been a while, like a few months, he was uh, preparing a sermon, and he called me, and he was like, hey, am I allowed to say sin on stage, or is that just like a thing you don't do? <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> no, I just hate that word. He was like, you always say like darkness or, you know, you have all these phrases that you say for it. And I was like, I hate the word sin because I think it's been mismanaged. I think it's been misinterpreted. I think it's been a manipulative word all over the church. And so it makes me feel, oh, but 
It's the word the Bible uses, and so it's the word uh, we'll use today. But I want to define it as clearly as I know how. So um, what is sin? Uh, f- f- my favorite thing, my dad uh, used to describe what sin is not, and it was a little, uh, I don't know if it's a song or a poem, uh, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't hang out with girls who do, <laughs> which I think is funny. But I think that that's what we think, like sin is like the stuff you're not supposed to do, right? It's hitting on a couple of levels. Um, <laughs> but the best definition I know of sin is this. Sin is the brokenness deep within us that makes us choose destruction in people and places and within ourselves. Sin is the brokenness deep inside of us that makes us choose destruction in people and places and inside our own selves. Sin is the thing inside of us that makes us choose uh, what we know won't fix what's broken inside of us and honestly will probably crack it even more. Makes us choose things that we know will lead to death or know will lead to destruction, but we choose them anyway because we want to cover what's busted inside us. And according to this moment in the creation story, this idea of sin comes into the world and it impacts everyone, all of us, not just Adam and Eve who have found themselves uh, with destruction in their hands, naked and ashamed, it's also all of us. And so like Adam and Eve, we've all found ways to cover what is naked and what is afraid and what is ashamed in us. It's our sin that causes us to redefine what it means to be a created person in hopes of being less limited or in hopes of being more like God. We make decisions that impact us and the world and other people. Uh, This week when we were in New York, um, there's this really cool reading room that that we met in every day and um, early one morning, well, it wasn't that early, but Early for me, late for Johnny. I walk in and Johnny's reading a book. And I, uh, I walk in and as I walk in, he says, I say good morning. And he says, hey, will you rank the following things in order of what you want most to least? Power, pleasure, money, and honor. And it was like, I would like coffee. <laughs> and then we may talk. Power, pleasure, money, and honor. Honor, um, I'm, we're defining, we chose this definition. Honor is, is, is that, that desire for like recognition that comes with respect. Not just to be noticed, but to be noticed and put elevated, respected. Um, he'd read about these four desires in the, this book that he's been reading. And, and I had this sermon in mind. So uh, when I walked in, what I really felt like Johnny said was, Lindsay, how do you cover up your nakedness? How are you most at risk for bringing destruction into the world? And that's a weird question first thing in the morning. And it's not a question I really wanted to answer first thing in the morning or ever. How do you cover your nakedness? How are you most at risk for bringing destruction in the world? These ideas, they come from uh, 1 John chapter 2 where John warns us away from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But in the first world, we just call them money power, pleasure, and honor. They are the ways that we cover up our nakedness. They are the ways that we respond to the feelings of being ashamed and our most intimate desires and longings and hopes and disappointments. He wasn't kidding. Johnny actually wanted me to rank them, and that felt really vulnerable. Also, what felt vulnerable is how fast I knew what my list was. And so really quickly, I said, I want honor, pleasure, money, power. We went out to dinner that night, and we were all kind of talking about it, and that's when I decided to get more honest and switch my list. I want pleasure, 
honor, money, power. And while I didn't really love that exercise first thing in the morning, it was very fruitful for me. Because I think it's worth considering what our list might look like, what our rankings might be, because I believe it is a good thing to both see and know and acknowledge where it is in our lives that we feel naked and where it is in our lives that we feel afraid and where it is in our lives that we feel ashamed. It is a good thing to get curious about the ways that we try to cover ourselves. And it's a good thing to try to learn our own patterns. And I think it is a very good thing to give God access to those places and access to those patterns. Actually, I think it's deeper than that. I think it is good to give God access to those things. I think it is very good to give God's love access to those places, to the places we feel naked, the places we feel afraid, the places we feel ashamed, to allow his love to access those places in our life. That will change us. Forever. Because it's in those places uh, that we see ourselves for who we really are. I was reading Henry Nouwen this week. Henry Nouwen says that. He says it's in the places that he sees his own nakedness and his own destruction that he's able to find his true self. And there's something quite holy about being able to find uh, what is true in us. Because it's true, uh, the true us, the vulnerable us, the naked us. That is the us that Jesus loves. Right? I say this often because it owns me uh, as a person. Jesus loves that version of us, not the future version of us that works out more and doesn't cuss so much. That's what my version looks like. You have your own. That is not the me that Jesus loves. The Lindsay that Jesus loves is the one who loves pleasure and honor and money and power and will use them to cover herself up at any turn. This is the us that Jesus loves. This is the us that Jesus rescues. The the true self. And these are the places inside of us that can be set free by that kind of love. One last thought, and then I want to do a practice together. Um, This is just, I don't know. What if God did something genius in the curse? Like, I was thinking about this, like, The curse happens and God did it. And I guess he didn't have to, but he did it. And so I wonder if what if the genius of the curse was to expose in us what would draw us to himself? What if he didn't like waste a curse? What if he used it to expose in us things that could draw us closer to him? What if the pain that came into the world in the garden would be the thing that would reveal in us our need for God through the pain of work and the pain of family? What if... His genius was that the consequences of our sin and the consequences of our separation, the consequences of our destruction would be actually the things that drew us closer to him. 